So I'm on the phone today with Amy Rathfelder, who is the campaign manager for Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler. Thanks for talking to me today, Amy. Of course. Thanks so, for having me. Just for context for everybody, it is Thursday, so it's two days past the Oregon primary election, and uh, Amy's campaign fell just a few thousand votes short of getting the 50% plus one that uh, Ted would need to get reelected without going to the general election. So mm-hmm. um, why don't we start off with, since it's, you know, it's pretty fresh, the whole campaign running up until Tuesday, what are some of the biggest things that you learned from this particular campaign? Um, well, this is a this is a weird one to draw lessons from because I don't think I'll have another campaign exactly like this ever. Um, and this is uh, probably I think the seventh or eighth campaign I've worked on slash run. And um, you know, there's something to take from every experience. Uh, I think if I had to take anything from uh, from this one and where we're at now, I think it would be um, to not underestimate the importance of visibility um, because it, it matters so much, uh, not just from a staffing perspective, but obviously from a candidate perspective, um, you know, working for a high profile incumbent, that was a really hard thing to grasp because um, he had to run a different kind of campaign this time than he ran when he was first running for mayor back in 2016 and um, didn't have to juggle being in office with being a candidate. But um I think we learned some some important lessons about how to approach that, and we'll take those lessons into the general election. Now, you you bring up visibility, and I was thinking, and I actually have spoken to a lot of different people who've been working on campaigns in this crazy coronavirus pandemic cycle. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it seems like the incumbency advantage, which is there anyway, because you have name recognition and you have visibility, would have been would have been enhanced in this case, particularly when you're when you're talking about an executive uh, who's, you know, it, I, and I, I turned on the news and there was Ted Wheeler on the news mm-hmm. um, yep. at, as the mayor. Now, did, did that kind of visibility uh, help or hinder you and in, or both? And in what ways did it do each of those? Uh, I think I think it helped um, more than it hindered. You know, I think that. Um, I mean, this is honestly, it's, it's unique. It's a unique race on all on from all from every angle. Um, because mayor of Portland is such a, it's an intense and, um, highly, I mean, everybody's watching, I guess, um, very high, highly visible job. So yes, um, with the incumbency advantage, especially running a race like this for an office like this one, um, you automatically have some advantage, right? Because, you know, I, I and my boss, we don't really have to, if we want press or we want visibility, it's, it's there. Um, with this situation, particularly, I think, you know, I mean, it's my own opinion, but I think Mayor Wheeler did and is doing a fantastic job with the pandemic response in Portland. He's gotten a lot of really good feedback. And so from that perspective, I think that it really, really did help us. Um, And it was a unique position for me as a campaign manager because right now my job is not to advise on any city policy, obviously, but it's to highlight the reasons people should vote for him and the good work that he's doing from a campaign angle. And so he made it really easy for me in that way because all I had to do is, you know, 
like retweet a video that was there already or I mean that's a small example but you get the larger point and but it was also on the flip side a little bit challenging because when you're in a job like mine um you do your best to control everything that you are able to control um oftentimes in campaigns there's a lot you can't control but uh so so you sort of gleam on to what you can and um you know working for an incumbent and a highly visible incumbent at that it was like Sometimes I had to let go a little bit and let him do his job and um, do my best from from the universe that I work in to just highlight um, the really good work that he's already doing. So uh, it was it was both challenging and also a clear advantage for us to um, to already have that visibility there. Um, the challenge is, you know, during COVID, uh, when campaigning has drastically changed, it was thinking about new ways to remain visible from a campaign perspective, I think was, was the hardest part. So, so, um, you know, you you talk about control and obviously you, you couldn't control uh, his exposure this particular time. What kind of control would you normally like to exert in a campaign that you, that you weren't able to this time? Like what, what in your ideal world would you have been able to control? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this is, this is purely speaking from my own vantage point, which is the campaign. Uh, I've never worked for an incumbent that is this highly visible and and this highly scrutinized. So I've never had the experience of working um, from a separate arm. I mean, in, in an ideal world, I have complete control over media exposure and what types of media exposure and how often and, you know, how they're spaced out and basically everything scheduling wise. And I just don't have that with Mayor Wheeler. He um, has this whole official team and this whole other schedule that he's beholden to that, you know, is is arguably more important than mine because he's doing the work that he was elected to do. He's a current office holder and that has to come first. And so, um, you know, for me to, to try and exert control is, uh, is not appropriate or, um, my job, my job is to, again, highlight the good work that he's doing and, and remind Portland why he should continue to, to lead their city. Now, um, let me ask you about the, hi- oh, yeah. about the highlighting aspect, mm-hmm. um, given that you couldn't, you can't control exposure, particularly for an incumbent and definitely a high profile incumbent. Mm-hmm. What kind of, what was your guiding principle for what you decided to highlight versus what you decided to either downplay or kind of just let fall off the table. What, what, what was your campaign strategy around highlighting? Um, well with, with any candidate, you really want to play to their strengths. That's kind of, at least for me, that's, that's, um, a a big, a cornerstone of campaigns and working for a principal and Ted's strengths have always come from, uh, his ability to, be really deft practically and economically um and he's a very very pragmatic mayor so uh you know making making big decisions the financial uh, maneuvering that he's been able to do especially in this crisis um that's all things that we want to um we want to showcase because he's so good at that and that's something that's going to be really necessary um and it's it's going to be that much more important with the recovery aspect of the COVID crisis. We're going to need someone who's able to be an executive and be a manager. And those are all things that uh, Mayor Wheeler has proven himself over and over again to be um, extraordinarily good at. So that's that's sort of a large example, but- um, well, that, That's actually, have- that's really good. I want just want to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Like yeah, that's, ahead. you know, the economic pragmatism and the kind of the fiscal responsibility, that, uh, that's definitely his brand. And- mm-hmm. 
um, I, I like that you say, well, you play to play to the strengths. What were the challenges in the current? Because every election brings with it a different kind of, uh, you know, news cycle and a different kind of environment. Obviously, this is a very uh, different one than usual. But all elections have this kind of, well, this is the atmosphere and this is what people care about. What were the challenges in um, connecting Ted's strengths, his brand, to mm -hmm. the current mood of what people are looking for in a mayor? Or, 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 or was it really like, you know, where, you, where you're like, oh, this is the perfect time? Uh, uh <laughs> well, no, that it's, I mean, there's, I don't think there's such thing as a perfect time. Um, I'll take the example of homelessness as, uh, what I'll use to sort of illustrate my point here, because that is something that Mayor Wheeler gets asked about on a daily basis. Um, doesn't matter that we're in COVID, doesn't matter that, you know, there could be, um, a pressing problem that, you know, takes part of the precedence or whatever it, homelessness is the issue, um, and homelessness is a really thorny issue because it's not an issue that, uh, A, has a silver bullet solution. It's what we call a wicked problem, which I don't know if you've gone over that term in your class. A wicked problem is basically just this. It's a, it's a big problem that is mired in a lot of other big problems and small problems. And in order to fix one aspect of it, you have to mess with something else. And it's just this sort of never-ending tangle of um, of issues big and small all meshed together in this one overarching term and, and homelessness climate change um, economic inequality these are all wicked problems homelessness is something that's been um, you know it, it's not just in Portland it's happening in most major cities and it's a worsening crisis um, and then uh, the mayor gets asked about it on a daily basis um, Homelessness is something that um, in order to you can never solve it, but to mitigate it takes very calculated and a very um, pragmatic approach. And uh, I think when you're talking about challenges, you know, a lot of people will criticize the mayor because they're saying he's not doing enough um, or he's doing the wrong things. And and Ted's approach to it, his brand is that he's pragmatic and he's practical and he's sensible and he's sort of unflappable and um, the solutions that he's poured into the homeless crisis here in Portland are actually great. The problem is that, um, A, you can't solve it. Like I said, it's this big, gnarly, thorny problem. And to mitigate it or change it visibly, which is what people are responding to, right? Like houselessness is a very visible problem. It's there. It's Portland's very small and condensed city. So you see it everywhere. You drive downtown, you see tents, you see campers, you see whatever. Um, that's what folks are responding to. And to mitigate that issue is not an overnight process. It's a long process. And so, um, getting folks to, to listen long enough to understand the steps and the ad advances that Mayor Wheeler has undertaken in his first term and the staggering amount of progress he's already made when, you know, in their mind, it's like you look around and, and you can point to it and say, well, it seems like it's gotten worse. Absolutely. Well, right. yeah. You can see all yeah. the tents in campus. You're right. Right, right, right. And it's sort of addressing the disparity between what it feels like and what it might seem like versus what is actually being done. Oftentimes, progress and policy and change, they're not sexy. You can't put them on yard signs. You can't write them into phone scripts, but they're, it's there, right? It's, it's the grunt work. It's what people who stay after 5 p.m. and wake up early, that's what they're working on. That's what the mayor gets up and does every single day. He's working hard, and it's illustrating 
the policies and the work and the behind the scenes stuff that's not necessarily right in front of your face. And so I think for this race and, you know, you could argue that in every race, honestly, but especially for an incumbent having to defend a record, that's the challenge. Right, so you, you make it about uh, the character traits and the ability to be the kind of person who can tackle a wicked problem, not about saying, you know, no, but hey, we're, we really have made progress, even though it doesn't look like it to you. That's yeah. so now um, this was going to probably be an election almost entirely about homelessness. Uh, and then COVID came along. Did did that um, help a little bit or did it actually make it even more challenging? Because, you know, you say that he was he's asked about homelessness on a daily basis, even though we're in the middle of a global pandemic and the world has completely changed underneath everybody's feet. Um, did it make it? less problematic to have to deal with homelessness as the central issue of the campaign because there was this other big thing where he could show leadership or did it just make it even more difficult because now the news cycle is dominated by uh by covid and not by homelessness um honestly you know i think uh i think there was a definite advantage for us right i mean it sounds kind of terrible saying that but what covid did for us is you know it, it gave the mayor when i talk about playing to a candidate's strengths it gave him a chance to shine um and do what he does best which again is the pragmatic practical grunt work policy work um that aspect of government which is government it is governance and it's good governance and um and he's done a fantastic job so in that sense um you know it it it, it does it helps in the sense that it it doesn't he's not being like hit quite as hard over the head every single day with the homelessness topic but homelessness and houselessness will continue to be an issue and it should be you know as long as there are people experiencing houselessness it will continue to be an issue and with covid um and you know the cdc guidelines uh to to uh place moratorium on sweeps i think from a visibility perspective um it's there's more people um, around and camping and experiencing houselessness, or at least it seems like the visibility has um, gone up. So he gets asked about it in that sense. He's never going to stop getting asked about homelessness. Right. So um, I think COVID has just exacerbated that problem and changed the conversation, but it, it definitely hasn't eliminated it. Right. But it does, it, you know, it does, you bring up governance. Like, you know, that is the, when people are aware of how important good governance is, that would seem to play to uh, his strength as a pragmatic, uh, you know, calm, assured person. Uh, because at this point, you know, from what I can tell, people actually now are starting to realize, oh my God, we do actually want competent people running things. <laughs> it's it's more yeah, it's I more visible so. <laughs> than it, it's you know, like I would I would like to that to be the case for voters always, but right now it seems to be the kind of thing that people are paying a lot more attention to. Um, so I want, I want to shift a little bit because uh, the our electoral system is that, you know, we have this big all-comers primary, and then if you get 50% plus one, you win. Otherwise, it's the top two runoff in November. So you had 18 opponents two days mm -hmm. ago, and now you have one opponent. Uh, how, do, yep. how does that, what's the different thinking, especially, you know, you're, you, we'll, we'll stay talking with you about an incumbent because even though you've run other sure. campaigns, let's focus on this. Um, what's the difference between running against 18 other people hoping to get 50% plus one and now running against one other person and just having a single opponent? How, how is that going to change your sure. approach? You know, um, it, it won't really change it. Uh, I mean, we're, we're going to have a different approach in terms of 
visibility and, and what we invest our, our time into. But as far as our mentality, it was never really about our opponents or now opponent. It's about uh, the mayor and his ability to talk to his constituency and, and connect with his voters. And that won't change. Um, so even though you yeah. have one one candidate, one opponent to focus on, and then that, that one opponent also, she now has only one. <laughs> she doesn't have to run to try to get second place. <laughs> you know, I have a feeling yeah. that, that the other 18 candidates, at least the, th- the, the three or four serious, you know, ones who had a serious chance at getting second place, um, th- they realized they were running against each other mostly, not against yeah. him. And now, and sure. now she's running against him. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, to be honest with you, Jack, and whoever else is listening to this, um, I just, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it. So so our opponent has spent a considerable amount of time attacking Just Ted and has built a campaign around criticizing Just Ted. So that's why I say, like, I don't think it'll be much different because, yes, while the balance of people has shifted, the goal is still the same, which is to win. And um, now we just have to win in November. Um so your Ted. opponent, your opponent is basically she's not going to change. Like she's she she was already essentially running a one on one campaign in terms of like attacking him, and now that she's the second place person, it's why why change that? Like she's clearly not going to yeah, yeah. she's clearly not going to start attacking the other people that she just beat. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm not running that race, and um, you know, so I don't know for sure. But it it just based on my own, you know, my own political calculations, it's like that's sort of been what I've what I've seen and what I've seen her and her campaign do and I don't really expect it to to change and if anything I expect it to intensify because she doesn't have anything else to worry about now except just zeroing in on this one one person one thing um right well does that make your task of you know like you you said it's you know it's not that different because that's what's been going on even during the primary but um are are you going to play defense differently against that or ignore it the same way or? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, our, again, our strategy was never really focused on opponents. You know, if, uh, if Sarah Anderone wants to come to a forum or a debate and talk about substantial or substantive issues and, and policy, then that is what we're interested in. We're, we're interested in the issues and we're interested in, um, in in good governance and um selling the mayor's ability to do that um it's not really we're not really interested in a in a like low blow negative campaign and we never have been so um i don't think that's what i mean when i say our strategy won't change um we will continue to focus on the reasons the mayor is the best candidate and person to lead this city moving forward not on our opponents Right, you know, and it seems, <laughs> and it seems like you you have an, another advantage in the sense that voter psychology tends to be when there's a crisis, people tend to not want to abandon ship or change horses midstream, whatever the whatever the cliche might be. Um, yeah. And uh, if if this were not a global pandemic right now, I think that your opponent could make a you know it's time for change, and you can really mm-hmm. without even having to make it too clear like too overt, I should say, um, to, to just be like, now is not a time for a change. Now is a time oh, for absolutely. St- steady absolutely. leadership. So, so, so it kind of, your campaign script kind of writes itself, doesn't it? It does. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it was definitely disappointing to get so close, um, to that mark. But if you step back and think about it from a 30,000 foot view, it's, uh, you know, 19 is a lot of candidates and, um, 
and with the limited lim- limitations of COVID and running, uh, you know, working for an incumbent who, you know, has to spend most of his time governing um, and doesn't and cannot be a full time candidate. It's um, I'm very proud that we we got I mean, he he was far and away. He has uh, he more than doubled the vote total of his next closest opponent and um came very 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 close to winning outright in a very crowded field so i'm proud of that result i'm proud of the work that we have done i'm proud to work for an incumbent with the record that that mayor mayor wheeler does have and i'm looking forward to the next seven months of um continuing to highlight his good work so you know i have to congratulate you this is you know it's it's only a day since the results have basically been finalized and it could you could very easily be super disappointed or despondent or, or just beaten down or, or exhausted, um, and I'm sure that you've gone through a lot of those different things. <laughs> so uh, let me let me just switch to something that's you know relevant to this particular moment, but also relevant in general to work and campaign. Like how yeah. how do you manage the emotions that are inevitable, right? Like if you would if you know, <laughs> in this particular yeah. case, like so close to 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 being at the fifty percent plus one. I mean, just a few mm-hmm. thousand votes and a hugely crowded field, and it like it just could have broken the other way so easily. Sure. Like I, I'm trying to imagine how I think I would be probably more pissed than you are uh, at this moment, and maybe you're deeply pissed, but you just have a uh. a, a sunny demeanor. Uh, yeah, you, and you don't need to you, you don't need to tell me what your actual emotions are. Let me just you know go back to the question no, like okay. how how do you how does one in any campaign situation uh like manage the emotions of you know these final weeks and then the, sure. day, the days after the result comes in well um so, so it's a good question um and i think honestly part of learning to do it is just years of experience it's something that comes with it with it with experience um you know it's politics right and uh it's it's both personal and not personal, which is sometimes a hard circle to square. Um, when you work on a campaign, uh, there are winners and there are losers and, um, you have to learn, uh, you have to learn. And this is where the experience comes in that if you lose, it's oftentimes because of a number of factors. Um, I'm a big hockey fan and this is an analogy that I use a lot because over the last couple of days, I've had a lot of people, you know, check in, check on me, asking me how I'm doing. Um, and believe me, you know, I have had some really low moments. Everybody does, uh, you know, you feel responsible, you blame yourself, you think about what you could have done better. Those are all very normal reactions. But for me, the key to campaigns is perspective. And that's why I liken it to being a goalie in hockey. Being a campaign manager is like being a goalie in hockey. Um, you're the last line of defense, but oftentimes when goalies get scored on, it's not directly their fault. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you just get a really crappy goal or a lucky shot or there's a big mistake that happens. But most of the time, it's due to a lot of factors. You know, defense fell apart. The offensive team had a really good pass and a really good shot, whatever, you know, lucky lucky goal, whatever. It's not directly because the goalie made some egregious error. And yet, oftentimes the goalie still just gets blamed right and what you have to do is understand that you or me in this case I'm, I'm a part of a much larger system um there are things that i can control and things i can't and it's about perspective it's about knowing that yes you are invested but this is still a situation that i'm never going to have total control over and as long as i can go to bed at the end of the day knowing that i did my best and that my boss did his best that's all i can do um 
you have to be okay with the fact that there's always going to be things in this industry and in this world that are out of your control. And, um, you know, so I guess my, my answer to that question is let yourself experience all the emotion. Um, I did, I did my sulking period and then you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you say, okay, what's next? <laughs> yeah. Well that, you know, so I like the goalie analogy because my, my daughter actually is a goalkeeper in soccer and mm -hmm. it's actually, I find it to be somewhat challenging to be the father of a goalkeeper because mm -hmm. I feel that nervousness on her behalf, but, uh, she actually somehow naturally has the perspective that you just outlined. She knows mm -hmm. that when almost every time a goal goes in, that it's the defense that let the shot happen. And she's mm -hmm. never she's never just let a ball go through her legs. Uh, though if she had, she would, you know, like that's totally your screw up. But still, it's like then maybe the shot shouldn't have even been taken. But I, you know, like I always steal myself to try to have to provide that perspective for her, but she always does it on her own. And it's I, and then I end up having to talk to myself about it <laughs> because I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, she let the game winning goal go in. And it's like, and, and I, I have the sense of like wanting to protect my daughter from the hard emotions that could come from that, but she's, mm -hmm. she's fine from it, fine with it. But I think yeah. that it's a great, a great example too. And you, you've used the word control an awful lot so far. Yeah. And it's really, <laughs> it's really interesting of course, because right. The ideal is to have control over everything. And the real sure. the reality is that you never can, and as you indicated yeah. earlier in this particular election, uh, you had even less control than you normally would have. One because you have an incumbent, mm -hmm. and two because you have an incumbent who's running a city during a crisis period, which gives you even less control over his exposure and mm -hmm. his, and the messaging and how people are seeing him. So, can, you know, like control is something to strive for, but not expect. Yeah, it's definitely um, if. If anyone's interested in in having a job like mine, um, number one, uh, good luck. <laughs> um, and number two, it's definitely um, you know, it's not necessary. You have to be okay with with letting some stuff go. You really just do. Like I I feel like in most areas of my life, I tend to be control freak ish. But with this job, you just there's no option. And when there's no option, eventually you just have to be okay with it. Um, you can't control everything and you're never going to be able to whether or not I mean this race again is like you mentioned jackets um, it was more out of my control than normal you know if you work for somebody where all they're doing is campaigning and they're not an incumbent then you have more of a say I mean you know they're still like their own person and need to have some sort of life outside the campaign but just from a campaign perspective it's like you know what they're doing all the time and you know where they're going and you know what they're spending their time on and you know with the mayor it's like i didn't most days i i didn't know all of that i had my time and then he had a city time and you know the only thing i could really control was my time and even sometimes with my time i had to coordinate with his official office because i didn't want him to do the same amount of press for the same outlet twice in one week and that type of thing so right. it was definitely very much um, dictated by other people at certain points in this election, which was a first for me, but you adapt and you make do with what you have. And I think if anybody is interested in getting into this work as a profession and as your career, that you just, that is, that's the biggest thing that you have to keep in mind is no matter what you're doing, you have to have the ability to adapt because this is not, this this industry is very volatile and there's never like a hard and fast rule about how campaigns work every campaign is different right adaptability it also sounds like it's helpful to be a control freak and yet <laughs> uh, who has some kind of buddhist perspective where you're like okay i'm i'm a control freak and i want to control everything and yet 
and I'm going to try, but I have to recognize that I can't. Is that true? Or, or are there people who aren't control freaks who actually are, are good at this work? Um, you know, I, I honestly think you can have both. Um, I think people who are just like married to their need to control everything have a little bit of a tougher time because, you know, like we just talked about adaptability and, um, oftentimes, you know, like, especially on high profile campaigns, you have a staff and you have people that you have to delegate to because campaigns are such a heavy lift and high profile campaigns are such a heavy lift that you can't do it all on your own. Um, you have to be okay with somebody heading your fundraising and you have to be okay with somebody heading your field. And, um, you know, so you do have to learn to relinquish a little bit. So I, I would think that, um, marrying the sort of Buddhist, like, okay, I really want to control everything, but I can't perspective is, um, probably will help people be more successful than somebody who just like, can't let go of anything. But um, right, you have to you be know. a flexible control freak. <laughs> you do. You have Which, to be a flexible control freak. <laughs> it sounds like it <laughs> could potentially be an oxymoron, but it seems like that's <laughs> that's maybe the balance of things. Um, yeah. So I want I want to move to a different question. Uh, sure. What are some of the hardest decisions that a campaign manager has to make? And let's just focus on the, the last couple weeks of a campaign instead of the whole sure. scope of it. What are some of the hard decisions? And you can give me either concrete examples, or you can just kind of speak uh, gen- generally in your experience. Yeah. Um, I'll give you some general answers because, again, it's, it's hard to – every campaign is different. So, um, But I think some common trends, especially in the last few weeks, are GOTV-based decisions. So how are you going to communicate with your voters in the last couple weeks? What are you going to deploy? What are you not going to deploy? What resources are you going to use? What are you not going to use? Um, those are really big decisions because the communication at the end is absolutely the communication that makes the most amount of – has most – weight and carries the most influence how you talk to your people who you talk to who you don't talk to that type of thing um i, I want to interrupt you there for just one yeah. second because i, I want to specifically ask about you know we have a mail-in voting system and mm-hmm. so uh you don't know when your voters are going to the polls specifically nope. you know you know when the ballots drop and mm-hmm. how so how do you sort of plan out or or uh, yeah. visualize that prolonged period of get out the vote um, well, in, in Oregon, it, it's kind of you can't really estimate it. What you have to do once ballots drop is rely on the good work that you've set up through your field program. So you do a lot of voter ID. You do you do calling every day. You look at the matchbacks, which um, for folks who don't know, matchbacks are uh, once ballots drop, it gets updated daily with uh, the voter universe you're working in. So it um, it will tell you. Um, who's been, who's voted and who hasn't basically. Um, and you rely, you rely on, on that sort of Intel and information. Um, and you, you deploy your field program, um, basically for all it's worth at that point so that you have the most up-to-date information that you possibly can. And that helps inform what you do moving forward. GOTV and the last couple of weeks of a campaign, it's a minute to minute operation. So um, it's not you're not really thinking in the big picture anymore. You're thinking hour to hour, day to day. Like it's not it's very much in the moment. And you uh, you make the next decision based on the most current information. So Oregon is a little wonky. It's hard to build, um, you know, it's hard to build your communication plan and field plan during GOTV around estimations. It's more like, OK, this is the system we have. And how are we going to work with it? So 
Yeah, I guess that's how. So, I so that you basically, it's it's game time. Like, and you can have yeah. a you can have a game plan, but then in the in, in the game, you have to adapt minute to minute to minute. I mean, I th- I, you, yeah. use, you use hockey as an analogy. I often use, as sure. many of my students know, football. Like, you know, the coach, you can have a game plan, and you can have studied all the film and know who your opponent are and what the matchups are. But then, you know, injuries happen, and the score is a certain score, and you have to adapt to the game as it's being played. So it seems like you're saying it's a similar yeah. thing here. That's absolutely right. I mean, you can, that, that's, that's a good way to put it. Um, it is like a game plan. And, you know, I mean, for us, like we have the areas of Portland that have typically gone for Ted. We have the targeted neighborhoods and the sub targets and, you know, everyone we're, we're calling and the lists we're pulling. Um, so, you know, you, you do your research and you build your universes and you deploy your resources. But with GOTV in the last two weeks, it's very much a, um, it becomes much more of a um, like instantaneous in the moment type of thing, much like a game plan. Um, sometimes it completely shifts and you have to adapt. Now, in, in this particular talk about shifting, uh, you weren't sending people out to knock doors. Uh, nope. and, you, you, <laughs> and you weren't holding any kind of rallies. And you didn't like I, I drove out on uh, actually Election Day. I, I, I like to vote on Election Day. Because I'm because yeah, so, so I'm because I'm so used to it from everywhere else I've lived. But I drove out to drop off my ballot at the ballot drop box uh, in Southeast, and it was mm-hmm. the quietest election day I've ever experienced. And no one was out yeah. there with signs at the corners. No one was honking. You know, it's like there were two poll workers with masks yeah. on, and it was it was really unusual. Uh, I, was, I was glad I went out, but like, what what were the specific things that you could do uh, this time? <laughs> Um, <laughs> like how, how, how did, how did you adapt? Like, and, and, you know, and, yeah. in, and in your case, and I, I definitely don't want to rub any salt in the wound, but like, because it was a few thousand votes short of the mark you were shooting for to, to, to have no November runoff, like the ground game could have really, it, it mattered a lot. You knew it mattered a lot. Oh, it did. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Um, you know, uh, you asked one of the, what you asked earlier was what are the toughest decisions you make? Um, I'd say the, the big other area is anything budget related. Um, oftentimes, uh, campaigns are, I think the most effective campaigns are the ones that you win. And then you look at your bank account and there's like 75 bucks in it. Like <laughs> per- you, perfect. You, right. Enough for pizza. What, yeah. Enough for the last yes, order. Enough, of pizza. For, enough for the last pizza for your volunteers. Um, you know, so much of, of the resources and the money gets spent in the last couple of weeks. And, um, and with this election, uh, it really, and I mean, our our whole budget structure got cut and changed and messed with. And it, I mean, our original plan, what we ended up with was worlds away from our original plan. So, um, you know, without getting into too much detail, it's like, yes, ground game was important, but we also had a very shoestring type situation in the last couple of weeks to work with. And, you know, we also had digital communication to pay for and mailers and like that type of thing. And what were we going to cut? What were we not going to cut? And, um, and so, you know, it's, it's, again, it's one of those things that now I think about it. It's like hindsight, would I have done things differently? Well, I don't know. I mean, I understand why I made the decisions I did in the moment. And, um, I, I still think they were the right ones, even though we were a few thousand votes short. Uh, it's really hard to imagine doing anything differently with the situation I was in and the box we had to work with. 
Um, right. You probably yeah, you don't you'll know that if you'd made a different decision that you would have gotten that extra couple thousand votes. So like that's that's the part of in the parallel universe where you chose a different yeah. path two weeks ago or a week ago. You don't know whether you had fifty percent plus one exactly. You know? Yeah. You know, and seventy five bucks left in the bank. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like what would have gotten me those last few thousand votes if I had had you know fifty thousand more dollars to work with? I probably could have done it, but I didn't. You know, I mean, and like. That, that that was the that was the box that I was in and so I made the decisions I made and you know I have to I have to live with the consequences which is now I get to work for mayor's campaign for another seven months right now, uh, now so, what, yeah <laughs> one, of, one of the things I, I talked about earlier this week I did a, a, a lecture uh, on making tough decisions and I, yeah. I talked about um, the difference between a turnout election and a persuasion election how much of what you were focused on in the last couple of weeks was turnout oriented um your go tv and how much of it was trying to like persuade people who were maybe on the fence to vote for ted or who were going to pick one of the other 18 people uh it was it was a, a little bit of a hybrid i'd say it was more turnout focused um you know for us it was really about mobilizing the support i mean i'm i'm very lucky to work for um to work for a principal who's held elected office since the early 2000s so for me that makes uh that makes that aspect of it really easy because he has such a broad base of support so you know all i really have to do is when i'm talking to my field director is say you know call this list and make sure everyone on it has voted right i mean ted ted has um that, and that's not always the case right if you're if you're working for somebody with no name recognition um, it's really about calling, then you start getting into like demographics and who would likely vote. Um, and then if you've exhausted all of that, then it becomes about persuasion. All right, well, this area might not theoretically go for my guy. So what do I have to do to make sure they do? And then you write persuasion scripts. And if you're not in a global pandemic, you do some persuasion canvassing and you know, that type of thing. Right. But for us, it was really about talking to our people, making sure that they were on board asking if they needed anything or they had any questions and making sure that they filled out their ballot and they knew where their Dropbox was. Um, and it, you know, I mean, it wasn't really a persuasion a campaign built around persuasion unless, you know, it, it was, um, it was somebody that was on our list from, you know, if we cut a list of supporters from four years ago and it was like someone we called that had changed their mind, that's where those conversations happened. But, um, yeah, it was much more about making sure our turnout was there. And so, you know, you said earlier, if you had fifty thousand more dollars, uh, that could have made a difference, and I, I believe it could have. What would you mm -hmm. have used that fifty thousand dollars for? Um, probably either to put behind more digital comms, or um, at, or uh, pushing the existing comms we had into larger universes, um, and basically, in layman's terms, communicating with more people more frequently. Right. So uh, now I'm trying to think I got so many flyers, so many mailers mm -hmm. mailed to me for all the people. Um, right. And they just like basically they lived in my hand for the 20 feet from my front door to my recycling bin. Uh, uh -huh. How do you how do you make those kinds of and I know that mailers are expensive. You know, every time I threw them out, I was oh, like, gosh. wow, this candidate spent so expensive. You know, this candidate for city council spent probably 40 or 50 thousand yeah. dollars sending out this thing that I'm carrying to my recycling bin without looking at. Mm -hmm. How how do you decide like which version of a communication is going to be the most effective at a given moment? Mm. Well, so the thing about mailers, it's like, uh, it's almost funny to me at this point because, I mean, 
I am, I'm a political operative and I see those mailers and I almost immediately recycle them. But the difference is not, it's not about whether or not you recycle it. It's about whether or not you have a mailer from that candidate to recycle. Like, uh, I mean, if you send out a mailer, um, and, and the person gets it and immediately puts it in their recycle bin, what they remember is that they got a mailer for, they didn't read it. Right. They didn't look at the fine print. They maybe like glanced at the front picture and was like, Oh, Ted Wheeler, I hate that guy or Ted Wheeler. I love that guy. And then they put it in their recycle bin. But all they remember is that they got a mailer from Ted Wheeler, right? right. Or they got a mailer from X city council candidate. It's not, it's <laughs> the funny part is it's not necessarily about what you put on it. Although that does matter. There are people that read mailers. Obviously there are people that re- read mailers, but it's more about the presence of it than it is the, you know, the tiny little, like, this is what I'm going to do to improve this issue or whatever. It's, it's, um, it's much more a general generalized thing at this point, because you're right. Um, most people just get it and they're like, Oh, I can't believe I've gotten like a million of these things. And they just recycle it immediately. So, um, well, you know, that reminds me of something that Tom Hughes told me about lawn signs. He said that lawn signs are kind of defensive. You have them up so that people don't wonder why you don't have them. Exactly. That's exactly, that's exactly lawn signs. I think in the campaign world, there's this running joke. People who are political operatives and electoral operatives, they get so pissed when you ask them about lawn signs because I can't tell you how many times I've been in, you know, work on, work on a campaign and it's like someone comes into the campaign office or calls or emails and they're like, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to volunteer. I don't want to make phone calls, but I really want a yard sign. (laughs) It's like, great. Thank you. (laughs) Um, You know, the, the common line is lawn signs don't win elections, but you know, I mean, it's a thing, right? I mean, I have a Ted Wheeler lawn sign and I spent money on Ted Wheeler lawn signs and I got yelled at by my boss because I did it. But (laughs) because, you know, he's always like, I don't understand. He has the same thought process. Like, why are you spending my money on yard signs? But, you know, it's because yard signs are, it's one of those things. It's like, you see them and you're like, oh, that campaign's legit. That person's legit. They have yard signs. It's this weird mental psychological thing. Well, and I, I will tell you yeah. that in my neighborhood in Northeast Portland, um, yeah. there were pretty much close to zero Ted Wheeler lawn signs. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did make me think there's a sort of mob psychology aspect to it too. It made me think like, yeah. okay, I'm living in a community of people who aren't, you know, who, who are supporting opponents. Uh, and yeah. so I guess what, what's in that? And so I, I, I can see why it would be, it, it would, would be defensive because I don't have that thought if subconsciously I even just register that there are signs out there. But but they're expensive, mm-hmm. and you and you you're like it's it is one of those things where every dollar you don't spend on lawn signs, you can spend on something else, and so this right. that is one of those decisions that you have to make. Yeah, and I mean lawn signs specifically. I mean, I've been doing this for so long that for me they're actually like so annoying, right? Because oh, I, I hate seeing this, them. <laughs> yeah, I have to spend all this money on them, and for what? It's like so I can give them away to people for free, and they they can get stolen, and then I have to give them another one, and then they end up in the public right away, and I get yelled at. It's like oh my god, people! Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's I I I live in Selwood, and there are a few TED signs. Um, besides my like, there's a few. Ted signs around, but you know, I drive a street over and there's like two Sarah signs. And then the other day I was driving down 12th, like over in inner Southeast Portland. And I drove past this house that had like four Ted signs. 
and I call my field director and I'm like, how does this house have four sides? <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's such a, lawn signs are one of those things that you just have to do. And it really annoys me that you have to do it. Right. But if, that's just if, me. if everybody in campaign <laughs> could get together and agree that nobody does lawn yes. signs, you might all be yes. happier. I, we, everybody would be so much happier. <laughs> it's an, it's a necessary evil. Um, it is, but, yeah. but you know, it does. So one of the things again in my neighborhood uh, is that, um, the, uh, I didn't see any Chloe signs, even though I live yeah. in Northeast and she's allegedly a Northeast person. Um, I saw a ton of Mingus maps and I saw uh-huh. only just a little bit of Sam Adams. And I, I ended up, I'll confess, I ended up voting for Mingus maps and he did come in second and also just edged out Sam Adams uh, for uh, that position yep. to be the runner up by a couple thousand votes, even fewer mm-hmm. difference than what you've suffered in your uh, yeah. shortfall. Um, and part part of it is though is I was just like okay I don't like Chloe and I and I want I want to I want to back the better horse here to to mm-hmm. so part of my awareness was like oh I'm I'm surrounded by a bunch of these signs and they don't com- they don't convince me that he's a better candidate than Sam Adams or they don't tell me that he's a better candidate than Chloe Daly is but it just gives me this kind of feeling that when I go to fill out my bubble. And I'm, you know, like I've read the voter pamphlet. I'm a medium information voter. I do my research. Uh, but I just like there's that ineffable thing that drew me to filling out his bubble. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that, you know, and I and part of it is that the the lawn signs do, even though I'm sure I mean, and I hate seeing them. I And, I'm, and, I, and I imagine that you guys in campaign, you hate giving them out, and hate spending money on them. But it did. I, I think it might have had an impact here uh, in this in that particular close race. Uh, yeah. But, I don't really know. I can't say. This is, I'm just uh, totally projecting. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really hard to, um, really. I mean, it's you're never going to be able pre- to predict whether the fact that like one candidate X had a hundred more lawn signs around the city than candidate Y. I yeah. mean, you're never going to be able to say if that's what swung the vote. Um, but. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and that actually brings me to, to a, a question I want to ask in terms of mm-hmm. like information versus instinct. Like there's no there's no amount of information that you can you can't get that information. We don't know. Um, and you don't know that you couldn't have gotten your extra couple thousand votes to get across 50 percent if you'd had 50 more lawn signs in Selwood. Um, how how do you like what's the combination of instinct and information that you use to make these tough decisions? Is that, um, is that even something you can discuss or is it just, you know, is there just a deep instinct involved? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And to be honest with you, it's not, not one that I, uh, that I have like a instinctual answer to. Um, I think that a lot of the decisions, the easy ones and the tough ones, although I don't know if there's such thing as an easy decision in, in the world of campaigns, um, like the that get made um, when you work on a campaign or a race like this. I think um, a lot of them, I mean, the good ones and the bad ones, they come from, uh, they come from where you've been, right? Like for me, I have been doing this long enough that you sort of develop uh, a know-how to some of the more logistical pieces of campaigning, like the decision to buy lawn signs. I actually, um, I made that decision because I know the value that lawn signs, even though I hate them, I know that lawn signs carry a certain value and, 
you know, when I was going over the budget with our with our campaign consultants, they they told me that we shouldn't do it. And I said, yes, we should, because here's why. Because, yes, they're annoying. And yes, it's a pain in the butt. And yes, no one really wants to do it. But if we don't do it, people will notice. And um, but you didn't have think, a you, you didn't have a quantifiable answer to hand back to them and say, and here's here's the yeah. here's the spreadsheet that proves that I'm right. I, yes, exactly. I don't have. I mean, a lot of decisions get made based on know how and feeling. I'd say. Uh, I'd say. I mean, for me, this is something I believe. Uh, I, I actually feel really strongly about. Political gut checks are a thing, right? I mean, we should. We should absolutely govern based on science and facts and and more so now than ever. But with something like political campaigns, um, you build up an experience and you build up sort of this portfolio of I remember when this happened and I didn't do this and this is the outcome. And it's like you learn you learn what works and what doesn't. You learn how to how to pull the right strings and which ones are worth pulling and which ones aren't. And. Oftentimes it's not those experiences and, and that gut check and that portfolio of mental information you have. It's not because anyone ever gave you a spreadsheet. It's because there are these just, I mean, it's a quirky industry and it's a quirky job to have. And, um, and it's, you, you sort of build it up on your own. And, um, you know, sometimes there's, you know, like, sometimes there's things that everybody does because they work like people knock doors because face-to-face conversations are the most effective ways to communicate with voters. People spend a lot of money on video advertising because video in the digital age is the most effective way to talk to voters when they're spending time on their phones or social media. Like these are things that are proven and that there are studies on. There are pieces of conventional wisdom that apply across, but then there's an awful lot that you have to do. That's, it sounds like, you know, campaigning is way more of an art than a science, whereas governance can be more of a science. Yeah. And I think, I think campaigning, I, I, I would agree with that. I think it is a little bit more of an art, but it's also, there are definite pieces that are hybrid. Um, and you sort of learn, you sort of, I think this is where I'll go back to what we were talking about adaptability. Every campaign is different. So what you have to accept going in is that there's not going to be a playbook for it. There's going to be pieces of it that you're going to do like every other campaign you've ever done. You're going to spend money on video. You're going to do text banking. You're going to do phone banking. You're going to set up a field program. You're going to set up a fundraising program, that type of thing. Tried and true methods that always carry value and always work Right. There's, some, a temp, there's a template to follow in general. Yeah, there's a template to follow, but how you do it, how your candidate does it, how um, how you work how you work it out so that it works for your candidate and your staff and your team and your campaign, that is more of where the art piece of it comes in. And um, so that's why you know people ask me for advice or ask me how to do certain things, and and I can answer about eighty percent of their question. But there is a certain point where you just have to trust your instinct and trust your gut. And um, that often takes takes some time to build up. But uh, yeah, it's in that in that sense, a very interesting industry and, and environment to work in, right. for sure. Experience really does matter. There's only a certain does, amount yeah. you can learn from like a class like this or from a book. So this raises me and, and this can this can be our sort of final uh, segment. Sure. Um, how do you deal with opposition within a campaign? Like a campaign is obviously the oppositional endeavor because you're running against one or more opponents, but then you have internal disagreement. You know, you, you gave the mm-hmm. example of the consultants who, were, who, who, you know, kind of 
push back against you wanting to spend money on lawn signs. How do you mm-hmm. ma- how do you manage opposition within a campaign, and and what are some of the challenges associated with that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I have sort of gotten to a place. I mean, the short answer is that I think it's again different for everyone. Um, there are, I'm sure, people who who have versions of my position that are like that are really lenient and that sort of uh, make it more of like a a flat structure and don't have as much of a hierarchy. And then there are people who do the opposite where it's like, I'm in charge and everyone listens to me. Um, You know, for me personally, there's always, I mean, campaigns are high stress, high pressure environments. And oftentimes that brings out both the best and worst in people. And there's always politics and politics, right? So there's always going to be disagreements. There's always going to be, um, issues there's always going to be some sort of turmoil and you you have to adapt and deal with it as it comes um for me i i think that uh i really value team input um at least you know i have a really great team i'm really lucky and uh, i've disagreed with them plenty of times uh sometimes i've won the battle and sometimes they've won the battle but the reality is the key is to um to surround yourself with people whose opinions you trust. And that way, when you disagree, because it will happen, you can always come back to the fact that you do trust them and you at least understand that the place they're coming from is legitimate, right? They're not just like trying to screw you over. Um, You want to surround yourself with people who are really, really committed to the end goal. You know, you can't, I always like, you can't half-ass a campaign. You just can't like, it's, it won't work. It just, it's, it's something that you sort of give your soul to and you pour your heart into it and you have to have a team that's committed to that level of work output. Otherwise there's going to be an issue. Right. And so, uh, if you, if you have people on your side that are people you trust and people who are that committed to the end goal and, um, and that there for it in the same way you are, then even when you disagree, you'll always be able to work it out because the passion's there and the commitment's there and the trust is there and that's what you come back to. So um, I've definitely had situations where I haven't had people like that around me and it has never ended well. Um, You also, I mean, campaigns again are are about building up experience and that's, I mean, that's a really good teacher. You, I mean, if you want this to be your career, you're going to have down moments and you're going to have crappy situations and you're going to have to earn your stripes. Um, that, I mean, I've been in some really tough situations. I've worked for people that didn't like me and I didn't like them. And, you know, I mean, you have to recognize that sometimes it's just not a good fit. It really isn't. It's one of those things that uh, not only does it have to be, um, you have to get along with the principal you work for or the team you're working with, but, they have to get along with you. And when people don't get campaign jobs, it's not necessarily because they're a bad political operative. Sometimes it's just literally because you're not the right fit. It's, it's an all or nothing type of gig. And, um, right. you know, it's, it sounds like a, more like a relationship, yeah. like, you know, you're not necessarily just interviewing somebody for a job. You're interviewing them for a high intensity relationship. You, you are seriously. I mean, it's, uh, I remember the first campaign I ever worked seriously on was Obama in 2012. And I remember, you know, toward the end, I would spend like 12 to 14 hours a day in the office. And, you know, it was like me and, uh, and the other staff, like we had toothbrushes there because we would like 
go get dinner and then brush our teeth and then keep working. You know, I mean, like this is the type of commitment that people who work in this industry have. And I'm not saying every campaign is like that. You know, I mean, this one, I didn't even, we have an office downtown and I haven't seriously used it since March. So of course, I mean, you know, this is a, this is a unique campaign and one that I will never have. I mean, this will be a singular experience, but you know what I mean? I mean, Right. You might, you might not have been that that. intensely involved in this one anyway, even if it weren't for the pandemic. Right. I mean, it's, it again, comes back to the question of adaptability. It's like, well, some campaigns are like toothbrushes and 20 million hour days. And some campaigns are like, I work for an incumbent with a totally separate schedule that I have to adapt to. Both of those situations are challenging in their own individual ways. So you just have to sort of work with what you have and and focus on the end goal and give it a hundred percent and um that's the way to be successful in my opinion well thank you for your time and all of your insight and your experience i think this has really been a valuable experience i i know i I always learn stuff when i talk to people who are deeply enmeshed in politics and i know that this is going to be great for my students as well so (laughs) so i really want to thank you so much for uh spending time two days after a high intensity election and uh I'll look forward to talking to you again as we get probably closer to the November election to see maybe what's like what's going on with you then. 